Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today we're talking to Mickey Fulp. He's the mercenary geologist. We talked to him about the Trump effect, the tariff war with China, Section 232 petition, and the 90-day working group, and the outcome from that. He also gives us some investment hacks for gold, copper, and uranium. Plus, he tells us why battery metals is not where you need to be looking. Hey, Mickey, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks for having me once again. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's good to have our favorite geologist back on our screens. <laughs> I might be your only geologist. So I well, know. I didn't want to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, Mickey, when I was growing up on the radio, we had a program which is called Letter from America. And it was a delightful man called Alistair Cook who used to recount stories of sure. what was happening, Absolutely. you know, over in America and sort of analyze it and tell us what was going on. I feel I'm, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing for us because American politics right now, we get, we're getting snapshots, we're getting edited highlights, we're, you know, we're seeing some very emotional topics being discussed and mm -hmm. some, some big business moves also. So what's your take Absolutely. on what's going on? Tr you know, Trump's been in there two years. How's it working out? Well, from the point of view, my business is working out quite well, uh, but we're increasingly uh, by, uh, polarized, bipartisan, um, so if anything, that's increased, although it was significant during the Obama years, you have the left and the right, and they really don't see eye to eye, totally different philosophies. Uh, the left is becoming increasingly socialist, which is anathema to a significant portion of Americans who are capitalists and conservatives. So. Um, you know, and what's really going on is the two-party system it appears to be starting to break down in the U.S., which I think one of the problems with the U.S. is the two-party system. Um, but I could throw this to you, too, and say, uh, what's going on in, in the U.K. right now? I, I see very similar things going on. With, Mickey, I um, wish we knew. I wish we knew. We, we, we can't work it out because I'm not sure anyone's got the, the actual answer. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I take your point. There's the, it's, it's a very fragmented, polarizing situation globally at the right. moment. I guess that's what we're going to get onto in relation to how it's affecting people's investment decisions and certainly how some of these companies are struggling to get by, okay? Um, but just, but if I, if I may just carry on, because I, I noticed on your wall behind you, you've got, um, I think you've got Barack Obama, you've got Hillary Clinton, and looks like a, uh, a Doberman or a Rottweiler on opposite okay. sides of the uh, wall. Is, is that symbolic <laughs> well, of your views of politics? I'll start with the first. A dog is a calendar that my girlfriend gave me for Christmas. So the dog changes every every month. But on the on my over my left sh shoulder is a recounting of the uranium one scandal in the US. And that's what that's all about. And, uh, and, you know, for those who are not familiar, uh, during the Obama administration, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, a state, pardon me, 20% um, of 
the U.S. uranium production capacity was sold to Rosatom, the uh, Russian national uranium company. And that's a sore spot amongst a bunch of people in the country. And uh, it should have been stopped. And it wasn't. Uh, uh, it can be argued that it was not stopped because of uh, 145 plus million dollars donated to the Clinton Foundation. So a uh, bit of a scandal there. Right. One which shall run and run, and I'm one which I'm not going to get into. Um, but it does lead us on quite nicely to what's happened since we last spoke. We, we last spoke, we talked about gold, copper, uranium. So let's talk about uranium. Petition 232, decisions been made. Everyone, well, most people are moving on because we're, we've got the presidential memo, memorandum, which is to, which has set up a 90-day working group to look at the nuclear production as a whole, not just uranium, but nuclear nuclear production capacity as a whole. Um, what, give us your, first of all, let's start with the 232 component. What was your take on that? Do, you know, clearly some people argued national security issue. That was the main thrust of the argument. It m- nearly got there, not quite. How did you read it? Well, I think Trump took a punt on it. Uh, it was fourth down. I use an American football analogy. It was fourth down, and he punted, and now we're in overtime. <clears throat> so he uh, agreed with the Secretary of Commerce that it was a national security issue, uh, but he did nothing about it except uh, extend the decision process or the action process for another 90 days with a study of, of the whole nuclear cycle cycle capability in the U.S. versus the original petition, which was only about uh, domestic uranium mining. Uh, uh, and that was started by a couple of domestic uranium producers. So uh, the market <clears throat> for uranium spot price like that, it forced utilities who had been putting off uh, buying on the spot market. It, it uh, it stimulated some buying, so the price went up about 10% or so, still very low. Uh, but what it did do was it cratered the uranium equities, specifically uh, U.S. domestic uh, producers and developers, lost about 40% of their market caps in a day or two. And in my opinion, that presents buying opportunities of those equities. I- agree that it probably does present a, a some kind of opportunity for investors certainly to look at those companies and if they like what they see yeah um but just let's just finish off on that do you think anything's going to happen as a result of the 90-day working group you know they they did have oh, yes i fully ex- expect some concrete actions by the trump administration in 90 days now let me say uh a couple of days before this was to come out, the decision was to come out on July 14th. Uh, uh, I went on record and I gave four possible scenarios of what I thought Trump would, would might do. And all four of those scenarios were wrong because he took a punt. He did nothing except extend for 90 days and said, we're going to study it some more. So, but study uh, what? What what are they going to study that they didn't already know? Well, it was really concentrated originally toward 
uh, the domestic mining of uranium. And by uh, in a in a petition put forth by two producers, and and they are basically asking for some sort of uh, of support through the U.S. government, be that through tariffs or quotas, uh, maybe subsidies, et cetera, et cetera. So he he punted on that portion of it and said, "Step, let's step back and let's look at the entire." Uh, mine to market capability in the United States. For instance, uh, even though we, our mining, uh, uranium mining industry is devastated, it is basically not relevant right now. Uh, we also do not have upgrading enrichment facilities that are sufficient. We're dependent on the Russians for for some enrichment. So. Um, so it, it really, it makes sense what he did. It was not what the market expected. The market was disappointed. I was disappointed. CEOs of uranium companies were disappointed. But, uh, but it's, uh, there's light, uh, hopefully light at the end of the tunnel on this. Okay, well, let, let's, let's wait and see what happens at the end, end of this yeah, uh, period. I, I, personally, I think it's a, it's a very big topic to undertake an investigation of in 90 days. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, I'm fascinated to see what they come back with. Let, let I, and I would, I will agree with you. It's a complicated subject with many moving parts. Right. So still on the top of topic of America, China, Chinese tariffs, good thing, bad thing. Ultimately, I think it, it's, it's not particularly good for for business. Uh, it means Americans pay 10% more on a lot of, uh, use an Indonesian term, uh, Chinese gigas. So uh, <clears throat> things that, that we buy at, uh, at Walmart uh, that we maybe don't really need, but, uh, uh, but it is going to increase uh, prices for Americans with with some consumer goods not big durable goods but certainly consumer goods this next round but uh you know the chinese are balking they're they're delaying and uh trump's put another bullet in the gun if you will and uh and threatened another shot across the bow uh i'm on record over and over again and saying that i think the chinese need the United States more than we need the Chinese. And so this is a pun, but we have the Trump card here and, and we haven't played those uh, that Trump card yet. Isn't this something that Trump's done on, you know, a at least a couple of other occasions with China Absolutely. already? Absolutely. But is that a one trick pony? Shouldn't are there more well, subtle I, I ways? Know, I think there's other things he can do. I think like he's what? willing uh, to do them, uh, put quotas on things. Uh, um, I'm not real sure right now, but we still can put more tariffs on more more things. We uh, he came out. Uh, uh, this morning or yesterday, uh, China declared that Chinese uh, the Chinese are uh, manipulating their currency, uh, which obviously they are. So that that puts on some world pressure. Uh, 
presumably to uh, force China not to continue to devalue the yuan, which they did. You know, that's now above the above seven, and and we all know it's a managed currency to begin with. It does not float freely on world markets as opposed to most currencies. So, but you, you um, don't you, well, you use all tools available to you, don't you, Mickey? And you know, if that's one of their absolutely. tools, they're going to use. It's it's nothing that the U.S. wouldn't do in the same position, surely. Well, I think so. So uh, your point's well taken there. Uh, you know. I can argue that all markets are manipulated to, to some degree, and they are. So uh, it becomes, uh, uh, I think, a point of which economy is going to be damaged the most. And I will argue that the Chinese economy has been significantly damaged by these trade tariffs. And has the U.S. economy? I don't know. Uh, well, the markets are way down over the last couple of days. We, I'm in Canada right now, and although I'm an American, I spend a significant amount of time here. So, so we had a holiday in Canada yesterday, and I was away from the markets uh, uh, on a boat on the ocean, which was nice. quite nice. <laughs> uh, but I came back and I looked, and you know, I'm looking right now. The Dow is—it's uh, actually up today, but it had the the largest loss of the year yesterday. So. Um, yeah. Uh, but the U.S. stock market is roaring. Our economy is roaring. We have record jobs numbers. We have near record uh, unemployment at 50-year lows. So we've done quite well. Uh, and the rest of the world uh, has not. Point well made. And I'm not going to get into an economic argument about um, the, you know, I think the, the market is not booming is doing quite well at the moment you know people some people we've had on would argue that's a residual effect from obama and i think a lot of republicans again we've spoken to would argue that is all all trump manufactured so uh it's in between myself we we were doing pretty good under obama but the point remains uh the dow's up something on the order of 30 percent since trump took took office so Right, so let's so let's come back to something you said to me in our last interview, and you, you were okay. we were talking about um, copper and gold in Nevada specifically, and you said Trump was good for mining. You spotted that early, and those were some of the bets that you were making. Um, and I, I you know hope that those have gone well and continue to go well. Obviously, gold price is up, copper's yeah. not, doing, not doing too bad, um, but. What do you think the effect of the, the this the, all this activity, global activity in the in the in the international markets, is having on U.S. miners at the moment? We'll take uranium out of out of that for now. Okay. How do you think yeah. the rest of the guys are doing? Well, gold miners are doing quite well worldwide. You know, gold right now is at another six-year high. I think it's about fourteen seventy mm. this morning, August sixth. So it, it and and the encouraging thing about it to me is it, it it's been now a month since it was below fourteen hundred. I think we built a very strong base at that lower fourteen hundred level, and and that's very encouraging. It's been quite good for the gold miners, from the small gold miners all the way up to the large gold miners. Their equities have increased twenty five to forty percent 
Uh, it has not filtered down to my niche in the market, which is, for the most part, is the gold explorers, uh, the advanced gold explorers. Uh, and there's probably good reasons for that. It's the summer doldrums, number one. And, and these juniors, low liquidity juniors, have always have tough times during the summer months. Um, so I think the market is probably waiting because uh, these are really high risk, high reward stocks, very risky, about the riskiest things you can do in the marketplace. So perhaps everybody's waiting to see if this is gonna hold after Labor Day, September, first Monday of September, I think even in the UK is uh, Labor Day or something, I don't know quite what you call it, but. Uh, but if we can get through the month of September, then there's macroeconomic reasons to think that gold is going to do quite well. And that includes the India festival and wedding season. So that's a, a time that the gold market generally goes up to begin with. And you follow that by, uh, you get a little lull in, in mid-October to mid-November, and then you've got uh, the North American, let's say the Western world, love trade for Christmas where uh, demand for physical gold goes up again. So um, very bullish on gold. I'm not sure I answered your question directly, yeah. but those are well, my thoughts on gold. I'm not sure you did either, but uh, you got onto a very interesting area, which were these, sorts of, you know, we've got this theme going on, which are investment hacks for retail, high net worth and family offices who don't have the experience that you do. And you, you gave some really nice clues as to the sorts of things you look for in terms of, the, you know, in this case, the gold market, you're looking for Labor Day, you're looking for the Indian uh, festival season, you're looking for right. the Christmas period. Um, so these are these are little, um, I don't know what you'd call them, little flags that you're, you're looking for when you're thinking about investing in a specific commodity. Mm -hmm. What about the companies themselves? Now you, you just said you like to operate down on the expiration rates. It's high risk, yes. high reward, but you know what you're talking right. about. You're, you've been a geologist, you've been in finance, you, you know what you're doing. What are, the, what are the clues that you can sort of share with people in terms of things that you look for? Not necessarily the companies, but the, the things that you're looking for. Well, I, I think you're looking generally to uh, anticipate what the market's going to do. So we run a very contrarian philosophy uh, we we try to get in early. We try to see trends that are happening. So I just gave you one. Uh, the gold miners have gone up and the explorers and developers to a lesser degree. There are specific stocks that have, have gone up, but for the most part, the juniors have not participated. Now, uh, these companies do not have cash flow. They fund their operations through uh, share dilution. So uh, but if you can buy those before what we, if, if we are in a gold bull market, and I'm increasingly convinced we are, then you look for sweet spots within that market of things that have not reacted yet. And for me, that's uh, the better gold explorers. Uh, you know, this market is increasingly bifurcated between the haves and the have nots. Uh, the haves are the ones you want. So there's, for instance, on the Toronto Venture Exchange, there's about 1,300 listed companies now. Uh, and this goes the gamut of commodities, but they're dominated by gold. And there's probably 
a couple of hundred uh, good companies within that 1300. And you go and look for the ones of those that have staying power, have good projects, good management, share structure, haven't moved up yet. And those are the ones you target. So you, talk, you talked a few things, a good share structure, a good management. So you're following people who have done it before, made, made you money or made investors money. What are the what are the sort of what's the structure of the of the company itself? Are these do they need to be above a certain market cap? Do they need to have a certain amount of cash in hand? What, what are, well, what are cash the in hand is a very good point. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but I know exactly where where you're coming from there. Uh, and especially in a bear market, uh, cash in hand or the ability to raise cash without undue share dilution, and that's the bane of many juniors is the inability to manage their share structure um, but good companies do that and uh, and they find alternative ways to 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 raise money uh, perhaps with the business model uh, you know uh, small royalty companies prospect generators those are uh, some a good uh, niche in the market to take a look at we've we've done what quite well with uh, a small uh, prospect generator generator royalty company illegal royalties picked that at nine cents uh, in February of 2018. Uh, I haven't looked over the last couple of days, but uh, it reached an all-time high at 38 cents last week. So, so that's pretty good return in a year and a half. So you need you go need to go out and find uh, find stocks that. Uh, or have not moved or have ability to to move again. Uh, uh, I still like illegal royalties as uh, it's being re-rated now as a, as a junior royalty company versus prospect generator. But, the, but there's, the, but there's, the, there's the tough, there's the rub really. There are lots of companies where the share price hasn't moved because it's never gonna move. That's true. <laughs> right. Maybe it's going further down. Yeah. So, so, but I don't. What I'm trying to work out is what are the what are the what are these identifiers which you say actually they haven't moved. It should move. The fundamentals are good. They're strong. That's the one I'm going for. Yeah. So, I'm, so for me, being a geologist starts with a project. So I'm looking for uh, generally uh, uh, advanced explorers projects in stable jurisdictions geopolitically for me that's increasingly uh focused on the americas uh although i'm i'm a, a early shareholder in private cup uh, one private company in in a very uh geopolitically risky part of the world um uh, but a good project uh with potential, the right geologic environment, uh, share structure. You want uh, uh, management to have plenty of skin in the game, so they are operating in all shareholders' best interest. Tight share structure management with skin in the game management that has had success in this business before. Uh, I look for technical management, either geologists or engineers at this stage of exploration development of companies. Um, and uh, once again, cash or the ability to raise cash without okay. severe dilution. 
So, so I, I take all that on board and that they are things that people must look at and understand for sure. Management with skin in the game is one thing. Management who've put money in but pay themselves big salaries, do you think they deserve big salaries because they've got a track record or do you think they need to earn that? What's your, well, what's your I think take? you need to look at their salaries and make a decision uh, on the stage of the project to begin with. So companies have done well and they're, they're at the development, permitting development stage. You can argue that those uh, CEOs, those management teams deserve higher salaries. Uh, you know, there's kind of a, an average median uh, amount of dollars that uh, CEOs at least in the Toronto, Vancouver markets, uh, that is, you look for anom uh, anomalies within that. So if they're making way too much money uh, compared to their peers, that would raise a red flag. If they're working for less than their peers and they've done well, well, that tells you that they're probably not uh, running what we call a lifestyle company where they take fees and salaries out of those companies and do not have success with, for the average shareholder. So there's some things to be aware of there. Yeah, it, certainly. We've interviewed quite a few CEOs. And we've asked the question and we, we get a very generic answer back, which was we, we pay ourselves the same as everyone else without, and the information is publicly available. So I, I always encourage yes. investors to Look at the go in and look at the paperwork, see if they're comfortable with it and see if they think that's a fair distribution of their money for the type of reward or growth or value being created by the company. It's, 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 a, point, it's a really important point. Well one. taken there. And, and it is that information is readily available through uh, uh, notice of, of annual general meetings. Hmm. Uh, the the companies uh the the management and insiders cost basis for their shares or what they've paid for them that's readily available you commonly uh one of the tricks they pull is they found the company and they vend a property into it that they have uh, a, a vested interest in and they reward themselves a bunch of shares for for a penny or less so you want to make you know, one of my common questions among CEOs is what is your cost basis? How many share do you own and what's your overall cost basis? Another question would be uh, your last equity raise. Did you participate? Did you put money? How much, how many shares did you take? What percentage did you take? Did you continue to dilute yourself because you have shares that, that, uh, uh, in total cost you a few pennies and now you're doing a, a 50 cent financing or a dollar financing. Why didn't you average up? Why didn't you participate? Yeah, they, they, those are fantastic. They, they are fantastic, fantastic uh, observations and people must listen to this bit. If, if nothing else in this video, listen to that because that is where the games are played and where retail can lose Absolutely. a lot of money. They can lose their shirt because that's a promotion game as you, I think a phrase you mentioned earlier it's a lifestyle yeah. company game yep. and these companies will not ever get into production because it's not the aim the aim is to take big salaries 
and paying us to mine the stock market to mine the stock market there you go mickey mine now, the stock market. you can be it can be argued that we all mine the stock market i mine the stock market. Uh, there's uh, the, but ethics sitting around waiting for companies to become uh uh gold miners i'm i'm looking for increase in share price and and i'm a trader yeah, no, I hear you. But I, th I think, you know, everyone's got a different business model because you, you got to do what's right for you. But I think ethics should come into this. I'm not always sure it does. There we go. And, and I think it's incumbent on the retail lay investor. And those are most of the people that are my subscribers um, that you it's it's not go out and pick the stock that uh, your brother-in-law told you was going to go to the moon. Uh, do, 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 do your own due diligence, learn how to research these things. Yeah. You're playing with your money. Yeah. Now, hopefully that's just discretionary funds that you can, uh, you can afford to lose, but, uh, you know, uh, go out like you're shopping for a, for a house or a car and, and dig into this stuff before you put that capital on the table. I, I agree. And you too know, many people don't do that. Uh, you know, I, I have an opinion that, that people are, uh, human beings are, are inherently lazy. Um, and I'm, I'm lazy, you know, if I can find ways to shortcut uh, decisions, uh, I do that. But when it comes down to the bottom line, it, you know, this is money. This is your capital. These are your assets. This is what you want to pass on to your progeny, uh, or uh, is what going to buy you your second residence and or third residence and some uh, vacation location, uh, if you will. Um, so, so it's incumbent on people to to research this stuff and not not just uh, roll the dice on these yeah. companies. Yeah, we, when we've it's seen, madness. yeah, it is madness. It is madness. We, we've seen a lot of different types of investors over the past few months. There's some very diligent, hardworking, serious investors. There are others that perhaps, as you say, don't work as hard as they could or should, given it's their money. This is their money they're putting on the table. If you're not serious, it's just a bet. Go down to the go down to the bookies, as we call it over here. Go bet on the horses, because yeah. your, your your odds are we, probably better. We have bookies here too, right? Okay, that's what we call them here, right? Okay, <laughs> and uh, you know we and we've seen a lot of people get, but what they all have in common is they all get very emotional because their money's involved. But some are going to win, yeah. and some are going to find it harder to win because they put different levels of effort in. And I, and I think that's been a real revelation to certainly me, because I've been come from the institutional side to sort of see the way that people approach this game that we're playing. And, and it really is a game. And, uh, and it should be without emotion. Should make trades, should make financial decisions in the marketplace without emotion. There's three basic emotions in uh, the stock market game, if you will. Uh, uh, fear, greed, and panic. Uh, so let's start with greed. <clears throat> in a bull market, when, when everything's going up, uh, people have greed. And because of that, they do not take profits. They do not sell. They think things are going to continue to go up and up. Uh, 
they get into things when the market is is going up uh, because of greed. They see, uh, for instance, the gold market goes up. Oh, well, I have to go buy gold. Well, I bought gold a few months ago. I, I'm not buying gold today at a six at a six year high. That's risky. Uh, and so what they and then on the other side you have fear. So when markets go exponential, they will go down the other side, they will go par, uh, parabolic. So once the top is reached and you start down the other side, uh, people have fear of losing their shirts or losing a significant part of their speculation. Uh, and so the third emotion is panic and it operates on both sides. So uh, people panic when things are going up and they go, I got to get in, I'm going to miss that. And when things are going down, uh, they panic on the other side. So uh, uh, you need to remove those three emotions from the equation completely. If you're trading with emotion, you're not making good trades. That's, that's, that's a great, I, I, I really like that. Um, I think we saw that with the cannabis market, you know, towards the end of last year and certainly the beginning of this year. Fantastic. Um, way to think about it. Now, Mickey, let's talk about battery metals. I've seen some of your videos. I don't think you're a fan. <laughs> Fair to say? Well, I think that's right. And uh, tell me why you know, I did. A, tell me uh, why I did a piece uh, a week or so ago called uh, why battery metals have lost their charge markets that have spikes to the upside that go exponential will go parabolic and a parabola is is uh it looks like this and so when things go up they will go down i guess i for uh for the camera i should do it like this when things go up they will go back down the other side uh, and that's what's happened all the battery metals over the course of the last year and a half um cobalt's lost 70 percent of its value yeah. lithium's lost nearly 50 percent of its value vanadium has lost 75 percent of its value in terms of prices so oh um there's very strong supply to demand fundamentals for all those movements but we haven't talked about nickel there but maybe we'll come back to that but you, but i think you know your premise is that these are very small volumes and therefore yep. And because of that, there's no futures or options markets. I think you've you've talked about in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't take much to be able to you know change the fortunes of of those commodities. Um, That's correct. And you know, and, and I think each one of them has. You know, everyone was very excited about cobalt two years ago, um, lithium a year and a half ago, um, and vanadium. Obviously, anyone who's got vanadium is. Uh, yeah, it was real quick, and then and then and vanadium. Anyone who's got a vanadium project is pushing the um, the uh, vanadium redox flow battery story at you, right? I'm, 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 I'm sensing from the eye roll that the vanadium redox flow battery is is not something that you see as a, a meaningful solution, and it's probably a, a side story at best. Absolutely, uh, you know, vanadium is all about steel alloys for steel and this latest vanadium run up which uh peaked in december um 
was, uh, and it started just a few months before that, was all about uh, the Chinese requiring more vanadium in the rebar because they've been making substandard rebar. Rebar for the uninitiated is essentially used to stabilize structures, especially concrete structures against earthquake hazards. So you put, and if the, the rebar that goes in the middle of the concrete pour uh, uh, breaks because it doesn't have, the steel doesn't have enough vanadium in it, uh, then it defeats the purpose. So uh, the Chinese established new vanadium standards for, for rebar, which increased the demand for vanadium which increased the speculation in the market. Price went to $34 a kilogram, and, and now it's back down to about eight bucks a kilogram, and that's happened over a period of, uh, of about eight, eight months. So um, the vanadium redox battery end of this is, is it's, they are the, best storage, arguably the best storage batteries that we have now, uh, but they are only good for commercial scale uh, storage facilities, football field size storage. They're, the footprint is huge for net vanadium redox batteries. They have no application at all in small batteries or even electric vehicle batteries. So a uh, very small part of the market, It's it will increase the demand for vanadium, but look at it this way. you got all these vanadium uh, explorers, developers all over, all over creation, all over the world. And uh, people don't realize that all the vanadium is supplied as a byproduct or nearly all of it. There are only three standalone vanadium mines in the world. There, there was four a year ago, one shut down and south now there's only three but most of vanadium comes from steel slag uh, uh, so it's reprocessed recycled uh, byproduct of uranium mining uh, so one of uh, the uh, u.s uranium developers uh, is uh, energy fuels they uh, they increase their vanadium uh, production uh, and as a byproduct of uh, of past uranium mining. Also, uh, uh, fly ash from coal-powered uh, power plants recover vanadium, and and uh, oil residues from petroleum cracking. So when the price of vanadium uh, went up, what did Shell and Exxon do? Did they they tweaked a few things in their refineries and started producing more vanadium? So you know. The cure for high prices is high prices, and we saw that in urban areas. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. So what do you think that's going to do for juniors who have vanadium component to this? Uh, and they're putting a value in it, or they believe there's a, there's a valuation being attributed to the vanadium. Is that a good thing for juniors? No, I, you know, I don't touch uh, juniors in uh, those specialty metals, none of which uh, uh, we've mentioned so far uh, i don't play in those games uh specialty metals are small markets they're easily manipulated once prices go up alternative supplies come in uh and 
and no, no better illustrative than vanadium, but also same thing happened to cobalt over the last year and a half. Um, so I am of the strong opinion that uh, we will not see any new vanad standalone vanadium mines in the world over the next five years. I, I see nothing on the horizon. Well, I hear, um, I hear you on that, but what, what about vanadium as a secondary product? There's a lot of uranium companies that we've spoken to we have, have uranium as a secondary. And, so and most, of that, most of that comes out of the Yerevan district in Utah and Colorado. Uh, and most of that is, con most of those projects are, are controlled by energy fuels. Energy fuels have the only uranium mill in the United States, and they have deposits that that have grades of vanadium five times the uranium grade. So what happens when the vanadium price went up? They they said, oh well, we have this pregnant pond solution's been sitting over here for 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 a long, long time, and it's got four million pounds of of vanadium in it. Let's turn on the vanadium circuit and run this through and produce vanadium. Well, vanadium. Let's talk about and let's, that's let's, what happened. The price goes down. And what are they doing right now? They're stockpiling vanadium until the price goes up. Let's let's talk about White Mesa. Okay. Energy that's fuels. That's what we're talking exactly. What okay. I'm so let's talk about it a little bit more. Now, we had Mark on. We've had him on a couple of times, three times actually, I yeah. think now. Yeah. You know, really nice guy. Um, obviously, a bit of a tough time because the whole 232 thing at the moment, share price is where it's at. Um, Let's see how that plays out. But he does have an asset there in White Mesa, which people get really, really emotional about. They're like, he's trying to monopolize the market. He's, you know, which, which, is, a, which is a big accusation, right? Now- The vanilla market you're talking about. Or the- well, Or processing full stop. He's got a mill there, which, Absolutely. you know, right? Yeah. And, if you were in his shoes, would you be doing the same thing? If, if, if absolutely, that's his and I don't fault him for doing that. Okay. Uh, absolutely not. Energy fuels with the White Mesa Mill will control for the foreseeable future domestic production of conventional, conventionally mined uranium, which means you mine it. You send, you concentrate it, you send it to White Mesa to make uh, yellow cake. And that will continue for the foreseeable future, in my opinion. But, but here's an interesting observation. Well, I, I, th I think it is. He's, when I've been speaking with Mark on that topic, he seems very nervous because of the reaction in the marketplace to own that statement. He's saying, you know, we will charge an appropriate amount. We will, you know, take a view at the time. But in any other industry, don't you just take it, own it, and saying, "Yeah, I will charge as much as I can because that's the right thing to do for my shareholders." Is that what you do? Absolutely, that's what I would do. I would, uh, I would charge as if I was Energy Fuels, I would charge as much as I as the marketplace will allow me to. So mm. uh, any other conventional uranium miner in the Southwest US must go through uh, energy fuels. And right now, 
There are no other conventional uh, uranium miners in the Southwest US. They also have um, the alternative uh, uranium circuit where they reprocess tails, they take uh, waste and they can turn on their alternative material circuit and recover uranium. So in my opinion, they're in the catbird seed and uranium space, conventional uranium space, not necessarily ISR space, uh, but they have that too in Wyoming. Uh, uh, there's a reason it's uh, one of my uranium holdings in my portfolio and has been okay. for 10 years through uh, companies that that it took over in uh, the early 2010s. So you, are you buying right now? Uh, it certainly is on my watch list. I have not uh, pulled the trigger because uh, I'm focused on a couple of other things right now, but uh, I have not bought, but uh, certainly on the radar screen at this point. Gotcha. Okay. So one, just on finish off on battery metals, one thing, commodity we didn't talk about was nickel. Looking at mm -hmm. market analysis there, I think it's the expectation that nickel market is going to take off one of the few. But again, your warning would be for how long? Well, uh, so once again, nickel is uh, used overwhelmingly to make steel, uh, some for petroleum and chemical catalysts. Uh, but the battery component, number one, it requires a different end product than, uh, than nickel and steel. So uh, uh, nickel and um, and it is very, very small portion of the market right now. Uh, nickel is used in nickel metal hydride batteries. It can be used, although not as efficiently, uh, for substitute for cobalt and lithium ion batteries, but it is a minuscule part of the market right now. Uh, 96% of nickel goes into some sort of steel product. About 4% is used in other applications uh, and including green glass and magnets and I forget a couple of the other ones. But the battery component of the other 4% is minuscule. And the most optimistic uh, predictions that I've seen for future nickel demand, and this would uh, uh, be the most optimistic uh, uh, projections for electric vehicles and battery use uh, might increase the nickel demand over a course of the next five to 10 years, accumulative three to 4%. So you don't play nickel as a battery metal, you play nickel uh, for Chinese demand for steel. Do you think anyone who's could have made money in battery uh, metals, equities, businesses have made their money? Or, or put another way, can, can we make money investing in battery metals companies? Uh, I, that boat has left the port this time. But these things come back around, you know, 10 years ago, we had a spike in cobalt, it took 10 years to, to have another one. Uh, 
Uh, you know, if you look at a 25-year chart of vanadium, you see these parabolic spikes either three or four times. So yeah, these things come back, but when they come back again, make sure you pick the right companies uh, when the buzz starts and and get out of them uh, when you you know take all your money off the table when they when the stocks double and then play the rest if you so desire. But uh, but that's the way these specialty metals work over and over and over. Okay. We've seen it. We've seen it in here's an example. We're in rare earths. We're we're in a little rare earth boom again. Uh, is it sustainable? Probably not. We saw a spike in prices. That's happened for the third time in the last 10 years. That's an interesting one, actually, because we, we recently interviewed a rare earths uh, company specialized in neodymium, which is mm -hmm. used uh, in the magnets, very strong magnets Absolutely. within yeah. within a battery manufacturer. So what you are saying is there's there's got to be a significant growth in the EV story, whether it be cars, buses, boats, planes, whatever, whatever home storage um, for companies like that to be able to succeed? Or do you think that there is a niche market for some of these rare earth companies? Uh, I would, I would be looking now for downstream rare earth, uh, not the mine, not the exploration and, and mining companies, but the downstream part of the rare earth business, uh, the ones that uh, have a feedstock. Uh, however, they get that. I would prefer they not be miners, but have a feedstock that they can source and have processing and most importantly, separation capabilities of separation technologies, new technologies are coming. Uh, for instance, North America, uh, we have plenty of rares. Uh, we have Molycorp producing again. The problem with Molycorp, it's called MP Materials now, it's a private company, is they don't have the, the, the separation capabilities, so they send their concentrates to China. So we need that sort of thing in North America. Separation capability, uh, uh, that is part of what Trump has done with rares as a, as a uh, critical mineral is we need to develop the downstream capabilities. Uh, we used to have that. We sold all of our capabilities to the Chinese about 20 years ago, and it's come back to haunt us now. So, uh, so there so are companies in rare space. Some of them are private. Some of them are public, but doing deals with private companies. So look at that at that magnet capable separation magnet uh, in product, the servo motor sort of end of that. Uh, I think there's opportunities there. And, and just just going to close that off so I understand. So I get the downstream component, but give me the reasons why you wouldn't invest in a rare earth miner. Well, I'm not saying miners exactly. Well, you have two choices right now outside of China. You have Linus, who mines in Western Australia, processes in Malaysia. Uh, they have problems with political opposition uh, to the processing separation in Malaysia. Uh, 
And, and the other choice, well, it's not really a choice because it's a private company, that's MP Materials. Now, there are a couple of very small producers in other places in Africa, for example. Uh, but I would be looking for companies that are in that middle to far downstream and and not specifically the miners or the explorers developers we found all the, in the previous big boom from 2009 to 2012 arguably uh, we found and explored and and evaluated for economics all the known rare earth big rare earth discoveries in the world um, or known occurrences, new discoveries. Uh, for the most part, those are sub-economic deposits because generally because of infrastructure or, or grades that can't compete. Uh, you know, Molycorp next to uh, China is the highest light rare deposit in the world. Uh, the two or three uh, most endowed heavy rare earth deposits in the world are in the far north of Canada with extreme infrastructure and uh, accessibility problems. So um, all the deposits we found, we got, we came away with no new mines. Well, uh, with the exception of a couple of very small things in Africa. So does that? Um, so does that? Is that part of the problem for you? These rare earth companies are small because they don't have much market share at the moment, and the capex or the fundraising ability to get capex is an inhibitor along with potential infrastructure issues if they're in the wrong part of the world it, there's, there's a bunch of hurdles to get over you're saying downstream is excites you a little bit more because those problems are mitigated we, we, we've we've got yeah. a source right. and it's uh, we have uh, for instance in 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 the united states we have all the rares we ever need uh, they're sitting for the most part, other than Molly Corp, which mines mainly lights, but has a significant uh, neodymium uh, component to it. Uh, they don't have the heavy end of it, things like dysprosium and terbium. Uh, that's not contained in Molly Corp, but those are contained in monazite stockpiles from past heavy mineral sands mining in, this, in the uh, Gulf Coast, the Southeast, or not the Gulf Coast, the eastern seaboard, Virginia to Georgia, and they're sitting either in tails or they're uh, in, in waste piles where they the deposits were mined, heavy mineral sands mined for titanium and zirconium. And the waste product in some instances is 65% monazite and monazite is 65% rare earths. And a significant portion of those are, are the ones you want the heavies or neodymium on down the line. I think that's one for another day because I think that's tailings and the downstream, two very interesting subjects um, that perhaps we could discuss next time Next time we talk. But Mickey, what's, okay. if I just want to finish off because I've taken up enough of your time today, but what's your general mood about the market at the moment? Obviously, gold, gold's on the up. You're not so sure about battery metals as, as a whole. But as an, with your, you know, your, your investor hat on, what are you thinking? You, you, you happy with the way things are going for the rest of this year? Yeah, so let's compare it to last time we talked. Uh, I, I'm extremely happy because gold's gone up. Gold's gone up uh, uh, from 
It's gone up $300 an ounce since sometime in late May when it, yeah. mid May when it was, uh, uh, 1170 now it's 1470 today so that's a tremendous return uh, and the market the junior market is always led by gold and so from that point of view I'm happy as a clam right now because we we have a, a bullish gold price where the base looks like it's being made at fourteen hundred dollars uh, on the base metal side, you know, I'm a love copper. I'm always looking for good copper plates. In my opinion, that whole base metal complex is not going to uh, to be based on supply demand fundamentals, which are very bullish right now, until Trump and the Chinese reach some sort of resolution to this trade tariff turmoil that we're undergoing right now. And I don't see anything end in sight for that. I'm increasingly thinking the Chinese are gonna try to, to drag this out a while till they figure out if they think that Trump can be reelected re because uh, I think if Trump is not reelected, uh, a lot of the stuff that I think is very good for the United States is likely to go away. Well, that brings us full circle Back, back, back to Trump and back to our letter, letter from America from Mickey Fulp. Mickey, I appreciate your time. Fantastically insightful as ever. And I've learned a few things today, which, which I always enjoy. Um, thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, Matt. It's always my pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com. And of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.